Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. And we're live. We and we're live. <laughs> it still says it's sharing. It's just my computer's so slow. What's happening, fellas? So this is going to be an interesting one. Uh, Bill is going to take a little break for today. He's going to be just in and out through June because he's moving house and he's got a whole lot of stuff in. So as a locum, we've got Mike Mitchell. Uh, welcome. Happy to be here. I'm glad I am here. I got to give a shout out to uh, my man, Kurt Martinson. Sorry, I bailed on launch. Love you, bro. I'll, uh, I'll catch you next week. <laughs> Sorry. That's my fault. Bad calendar. Calendars are hard. <laughs> they, they are hard. They are. That, that's second level stuff. And uh, Jake Taylor, as always, how you doing? Happy to be here and uh, excited to have the Lumber Baron with us for, for today's episode. <laughs> I, I hope well, you guys only want to talk about lumber because that's all I'm prepared to discuss. Well, we've got we've got home shopping and lumber, right? Are you still uh, can you still still discuss home shopping? Yeah, no, still involved with Q. I can say anything you want to know about middle-aged women's shopping patterns and uh, and housing starts and lumber prices. I'm happy to make an attempt. Well, let's let's uh, let's let's talk about let's talk about what you've seen. So, what I think in a in a broader con- in a broader conversation, there's this sort of ongoing discussion about whether we've got inflation here to stay or not. Is it transitory? Is it is it just sort of by virtue of the fact we just had that restart a year ago? And so, lumber is a is a commodity price that gets tracked pretty uh, closely as it's sort of associated with when lumber spikes, it's, that's a good thing, right? That's the beginning of the, the rebuilding for, for housing. So what, do, you, do you think there's any broader story to draw from it or, or what, what do you think? Is it an idiosyncratic thing for lumber? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, I've been uh, inaccurately predicting changes in inflation uh, for 10 years. So I, I'm happy to make some new predictions if anybody really wants to jump let's in and, and talk inflation. I, I've been doing it badly for 10 years. I'm happy to keep going. Um, yeah, my, my broad strokes take on inflation is I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, um, it, it's, it seems logical. You know, it's so tough, especially when as much time as I've been on Twitter since I have nothing else to do. There's, there's every 15 minutes, there's another take with a, you know, labor, you know, wage inflation, everything else. And I'm following all of it. And it seems really logical that that's happening. But, you know, to be honest, nothing really would surprise me if we found out a year from now that inf- inflation was back down to, you know, one and a half percent. That wouldn't surprise me. If we saw inflation spike to four, that wouldn't surprise me. I, I am not an expert in inflation. The lumber market's a little, it's a little different. It's kind of this weird, um, it's this weird sort of not super liquid, kind of more like a dark market for commodities. And, not really sure what it shows you about the broader economy, where, where it really manifests is in, in housing. So if you, um, it's it's almost like it's at the point, or at least in the work that I've done, it's almost like it's at the point where if, if you tell me what housing starts are going to be, I can tell you likely where lumber is going to fall. And it really hinges on the, there's one housing start number that you really pay attention to. And if it's sort of 
north of that number, then my guess is lumber is going to be strong. And if it's south of that number, then lumber is going to be weak. So it tells me a lot about housing. I'm not sure it really tells me about inflation in the broader uh, economy. What, do you, what does it tell you about housing? Housing's housing, white hot. It's white hot. Yeah, it's white hot. I mean, you, you, it, it, you, you'd be, it'd be very tough to find a negative housing data point. Really, the, the, the negatives are, oh, this market isn't quite as hot. You know, it was white hot and now it's, you know, slightly less uh, bright shades of white hot than it was uh, a Except month ago. Except maybe, was it like 11 million people not paying rent? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. They're building their dream house. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's happening. All, all at 12 months of rent savings and now they can afford to build their, their dream home. Um, shout out to Nick who hasn't paid rent, I don't think, in like 18 months. You're the man, Nick. Um, he's a good account. Um, so yeah, so it really just, it, it shows you about housing. It's what, what I'm seeing, or at least what I'm hearing is that housing, and this is all public stuff. I'm just laser focused on it because it's where all my money is, but, um, the housing market's very strong. And what's, what's interesting about it is housing demand is so strong that pricing is running, uh, above materials inflation. And so people are looking for signs that this is going to cool, or this is going to cool and so far um, when a house gets listed, it moves and uh, houses are moving above ask. Uh, Toll Brothers said, I believe it was last week that they're pricing above inflation. I mean, the, the demand is there. Uh, what I'm particularly watching is housing starts, uh, which are bouncing around, but really the magic number for me is a million and a half housing starts a year. And it kind of depends on who you ask. There are some people who are very smart on this, but um, I believe it was early last year. So February, 2020, uh, Freddie Mac released a study saying we're two and a half million homes undersupplied in the country. But if you looked at migration patterns, it, it could be as many as like three and a half million homes. So if you look at population and household, uh, it looks to me like we need to build uh, at least 1.8 million homes a year over the next 10 years to catch up. Um, if that's the case, then I, I would guess lumber stays pretty strong. If, if you see housing starts go down below a million five, I would tell you lumber is likely to go back to where it's been, uh, which is um, around four, 450 bucks, which is, you know, as all commodities price to the, you know, marginal producer. And that, that's what I would expect. What's the driver of, or the, the shortfall in housing? Has it been, was it, has the last, there was some sort of hangover from the, the big 2007 to 2009 boom, and it's been yeah. undersupplied for the last sort of 11 or 12 years? Yeah, you can see it. If, if, if um, What's really interesting about housing is there's a lot of data. So especially like census data, this gives housing starts going back to the 40s. So you can see forever, you know, post-World War II, you can see this ramp. And in the 60s, you can see a ramp on suburbanization. And you see some lull periods like the early 90s on recession and then see these ramps again. And then you'll, you, you will notice if you do this, and I, I love working with spreadsheets, so I, this kind of stuff's fun for me, but you'll see uh, leading up to the Great Recession, you'll see the housing boom. You can see starts, like I think starts peaked at 2.4 uh, annualized, and then the actual year, I think they put out two or something like that. So you see housing went way above trend and then boom, you know, housing crisis and the big short and everything. And you, you see the numbers go down to sub a million starts. Uh, and it stayed there. And so there's this big question at the time. Uh, I remember I was working on housing at the time. And it's a big question. Are we just you know, burning off the old inventory and how long is that going to take? And then, but it stayed weak. I mean, I, I, I would have lost that bet. I, I um, shout out to Ivy Zellman. I think she's phenomenal. Her firm's great. You know, they've been predicting this recovery in housing starts for a long time and, and predicting home price appreciation in the absence of housing starts. And she's been right about the home price appreciation, housing starts we just hadn't seen. I, I'd predicted it would, it would come. So now the, again, uh, back to inflation, 10 years of being wrong on my prediction, I'm ready to make some new predictions about the housing market. Um, but uh, there, there's no doubt we're undersupplied. So it's just a question of 
Um, is this, was COVID the trigger that's going to get us to catch up in housing? Or are we in fact just going to go back to where we were in 2018, 2019? And my bet is it's a different world. Uh, My bet is the next 10 years looks more like 20 years ago, less like 10 years ago. That's the bet. Was that so? That's the early two thousands where it was boomish for, for for an extended period of time. Uh, yeah, I'd say maybe like ninety three to okay. like two thousand four. You I know, got some bad news, mate. That's more than twenty years ago. Yeah. Oh God, Jesus. Uh, I'm I'm forty one years old, Toby. Okay. It, so it feels. I know. Oh, I'm with you. It feels 30 like thirty years ago. Yeah, that's that's the scary thing, right? Got to start thinking in those terms. Yeah, because my back feels in those terms. I guess my brain needs to catch up. <laughs> you and George Soros. Yeah. The nice thing about making predictions on a podcast is you never get marked to market. You can just keep on saying it just That's hasn't right. happened yet. Just keep going. Just keep going. Yeah. Be a talking head. Don't put an expiration date on it. It just hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> oh, it's, it's fascinating, man. I, I, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I kind of stumbled into this whole lumber thing and it's, um, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I, I can now... Like I, I can now tell you marginal shipping shipping rates, like the cost per thousand board foot of, of Eastern European uh, lumber shipped to the East Coast. You know, I got all this stuff. Any of these facts, these little data, data points you need, I've got them all for you. I'll, I'll bet your wife is just as well-schooled in it too. She can probably have a conversation with her. She couldn't be happier. <laughs> she, she can. She's a surgeon, so she can she can speak to uh, surgeries and she can speak to lumber prices. That's really no more, no more lumber, Mike. No more. I can't, I can't <laughs> yeah, hear it. I don't. I don't. No more. I, no I more. do have my, my poor, I'm, so, I'm, being, I'm being your wife. So yeah, my poor being... old wife is like value and growth. She's just like, can't hear it anymore. Just, just like, to tell know. somebody else, tell the kids. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, I don't care what the cheapest stock on the TSX is on an acquires multiple bases. Just stop. But, but stop. it's small. It's small and micro, so it's really liquid. So I'll, no, she she, <laughs> she likes the derivative. That's funny. That's funny. So that's one of the things that my topic is. Sent, I'm just I've purposefully gone out of. I got a question here. for Mike first, though. On the yeah, good. Yeah, good. Good. Shoot. The uh, do you, is it does lumber kind of follow a in econ- economics? They have this term called like cobweb effect, where um, you know, if there's a, a lag period between when supply can sort of ramp up to catch up with, with the demand, and then it tends to then overshoot and then, you know, demand falls off and you end up with where it's really hard to find equilibrium in a market yeah. that has these effects. Yeah. Does, is lumber fit in that mold? So lumber's unique. Um, there's a lot of unique aspects to it. And I, 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 I first of all, let me, admit I am not an expert on commodities in general. There are some really, really, really good, intelligent, thought, thoughtful people on Twitter that can answer these questions. And but they're I've, not here I've, right now. So let's get you. Yeah. Mic. So let's, it's me. Yeah. You get me. So let's do this. Uh, so I, you know, it like for years, I, I, I was invested in Lion Dell. So I, I was invested in the, in the crack spreads, the ED crack spreads. And so there's always these weird dynamics. Well, lumber is, and that was all because of fracking, you know, your ethyl costs were zero. And so um, there's the lumber has weird dynamics. So, on the one dimensional lumber, which thinks studs, two by fours, trusses, that kind of thing, it's made mostly with uh, softwood. Softwood is produced, or almost all of it's made with softwood. Softwood's produced in Canada primarily and also the Pacific Northwest. There are other components of dimensional lumber and then other you know, pieces of lumber that go into a home that can be made with Southern yellow pine in the Southeastern United States. So if you Look at how a home is built in the United States or in North America. Almost all the studs are spruce, uh, fir, um, all of the, if Stinson Dean were here, he could tell you, but it's, it's all where the, where the wood actually meets the concrete in the base, the flooring, that can be Southern yellow pine. What's interesting about the lumber market is the, the uh, Canadian spruce, the softwood that we have uh, in this country, 
there isn't a lot of it, right? So that the cut, so Canada has for years been reducing their annual allowable cut, their AAC for various reasons. And this goes back, which you guys, forgetting all the detail, which I'm happy to go into, but forgetting all the detail, think of it this way. Uh, you're not going to build a mill in Canada. Canada is allowing to cut what they allow to cut. And that's, that's sort of it. That has been on the decline for five years. That doesn't show any signs of improving. There is, however, and that, so it's, it's declining and probably my guess would be it keeps declining or maybe stabilizes. So in the Southeastern United States where they make, or the, sorry, they cut and produce uh, boards from Southern yellow pine, that's growing. I think the Kager has been like 5%. That produces a specific type of wood. I'm told that you can actually use that for dimensional stud grade lumber, but it requires a lot of capex to dry it. If we solve the quote unquote lumber shortage, and the lumber shortage is only a thing if we produce more than a million five you know, new homes in this country. If we do less than that, we don't have a shortage. If we do more than that, we do have a shortage. So the question is, can we build mills in the Southeastern United States that can, can meet that shortage? My guess is that that's exactly what will happen. It's really not a question of whether that will happen. It's a question of when that will happen, how long it will take. Um, Right now, for everything that's been slotted, greenfield, brownfield, uh, we can we can catch up to about a third of, of how short we are. At least this, that's what my math suggests, that we can catch up to about a third of how short we are with the existing projects. Interestingly, so you're hearing about all the supply chain problems. Everybody's really busy. So if you and I decide, so Jake and I are going to go build a, a greenfield mill in the southeastern United States, and we're going to cut some southern yellow pine. I think the construction can start in two years and will take at least two years. So I, I really think we're talking about like maybe depending on how strong housing is, this could maybe resolve itself in three years. Um, my guess is, you know, five years from now when we do our, our recap call of how wrong all my predictions were, uh, that it will definitely be solved. That'd be my guess. In the interim, if the demand is there to build homes, home builders want to build homes and we're building more than about a million five, think of it homes that wood's probably gonna come from Europe. That'd be my guess. It's gonna come from Finland. It's gonna come from Sweden, Germany, maybe Austria. There's a chance it comes from Russia, although uh, Putin has said by January of 2022, he's not shipping any softwood or hardwoods out of the country anymore. So we'll see what happens there, but it's gonna come from Europe. So if I had to guess of where lumber prices are gonna stabilize, my guess would be that the new marginal producer, if housing stays strong, is coming from Europe. So it's the cost to ship a thousand board foot from Eastern Europe uh, to the United States to meet that demand. Right now, spot rates are, I believe the math I calculated, spot rates are about $800 per board foot to ship. Uh, spot rates have doubled from uh, Eastern Europe to uh, the Eastern seaboard. That used to be closer to 400. So maybe it comes back down, maybe it's four to 800, but then you've got your cost to produce. So my guess is much like ethyl, uh, sorry, uh, naphtha was to ethyl for Lyondell, my guess is that if, if housing demand stays strong, that's going to be the marginal producer. So your cost will, will come down. And I don't know if they level off at 600, 800. I'd be, if housing demand stays above 1.5, I'd be real surprised if they go back to 400. So the issue is mills, not, I mean, you, you, to, to create any forest, that's like a 25 year endeavor, presumably. So uh, longer, I mean, it depends on the forest. So we have a ton of Southern yellow pine in this country. If you build a mill, you can basically get free. I mean, there's, there's plenty of that stuff. Um, it's the stuff in the Northwest uh, United States, Pacific Northwest. And then in Canada, the Canada trees, I, I, I've heard Stenson say it takes 80 years. I've I heard another analyst Ooh. say it takes 40 years, but th those trees are, they're, they're, it's going to take a while. That's how I'm, I'm pretty confident we're not getting more softwood trees out of Canada. I think what they're allowing for cut is they consider to be sustainable. And so it, it's almost like this investment that I made 
if you look at the, the what I think the real value there is, is the cut rights. I think the cut rights are really what has the value there. The mills themselves, you can optimize and, and they, they'll be quite profitable, but it's really those cut rights are so valuable because these trees take a generation. I mean, they take a long time to grow. So my guess is that, uh, like I said, I really don't think you're going to see a lot of greenfield in Canada. Somebody's probably on, I'm not watching this on YouTube. Somebody's probably in there like chiming in about how wrong I am about all this. And you're going to see all these mills go up in Canada, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, it's very difficult to get the cut rights in Canada. So it's, it's really all going to happen in the Southeastern United States. But this industry too, these guys were burned for so long. I mean, these were, sh- I can, can I cuss on live stuff? You, you can. can. These are really shitty businesses for 10 years. I mean, you know, when you had starts below a million, these guys were going out of business left and right. And their returns have just been awful. They weren't terrible in the nineties and the early two thousands, but they've been bad for 10 years. And so, it, you know, it's what's fun is like having a presence on Twitter and having some, like uh, some people follow you, you get these like, you know, Hey man, if you ever want to talk, I run a mill in Oregon. If you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. I'm like, Fuck yes, I want to talk about that. Get on the phone. And it's like, nobody wants to build a new mill. I mean, they're so scarred that what everybody's since Interfor just paid a huge special one-time dividend. Like they just are, I'm happy for him too. I'm like, man, you guys had eaten it for 10 years. And now you finally have some money in your pocket. It's like, it's good to see. It's been a tough industry for a long time. So nobody's really rushing out to build mills now, which is also part of the problem. They will, you know, of course they will. It's just a question of when. It'll be a bunch of finance guys that get into it. Yeah. I think it's a good idea to. Jake, you can spec Jake, that. Jake, how much cash do you have? <laughs> yeah. You want to build a mill? We're going to spec a mill. Yeah. That's a good follow-up question too, is uh, did we, have we considered just trying to print more lumber? Is that well? That's a good idea. You know, I don't think that's been considered. I'll I'll run it up the flagpole, see what comes okay. out. Uh, so that's lumber. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a great that's a great take. That's the most comprehensive take we've ever had on anything on this on show anything, so. by like a country mile. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Don't get used to this quality because uh, uh, yeah. we we can't sustain it for the long run. <laughs> What's your, what's your, what's, or even for the rest of this show, what's, what's your, what's your topic today, JT? Uh, I have a little segment on the uh, tapeworm that might be of particular interest. <laughs> well, do you want to, do you want to, do you want to take it away? Yeah, we can do it now. Um, so this came from Buffett was talking about the healthcare industry and his failed venture with JP Morgan and Amazon. Um, it's called Haven. And him and Charlie were asked about it. Uh, and he said that uh, we learned a lot about the difficulty of, of changing around an industry that's 17% of GDP. We were fighting a tapeworm in the American economy and the tapeworm won. And then Munger laughed at that point and said, like, that's a good analogy for it. Like as if maybe they hadn't even talked about it before. But so I thought maybe we'd jump into a little bit of some uh, some tapeworm background, and then maybe even a possible solution to our 18% GDP problem. So uh, we're, we're tackling the big, the big movers here. Um, you just tie some meat on a bit of string, don't you? That's how you, that's how you get it to come out. Well, you know, if, the, out. if all the guys who are complaining about uh, Googling Yarrick and the pictures that that showed, <laughs> don't, don't go for the, the tapeworm either. It's, it, you, Google it's, Yarrick. There's some things that you uh, can kind of, you won't be able to unsee when you look at tapeworm pictures. So I did it for you. So you don't have to. Um, So little background on the tapeworm, uh, lovable little guy. Uh, (laughs) So they're they're caused by ingesting food or water that has the either eggs or larvae in it. And once it's inside, it can migrate outside of your intestines into almost anywhere in your body and, and form these little cysts. 
Um, Horrifying. And then, yeah. So the, the, the symptoms of it are nausea, weakness, diarrhea, headaches, allergic reactions, seizures, which are basically all of the same symptoms that you have when you deal with the uh, medical industry <laughs> or, or, or stock market corrections, frankly, that's yeah. also, it's yeah. very similar. Exactly. So these things can grow up to 80 feet long and live for 30 years, which is kind of a, kind of a miracle in that, uh, you know, the alimentary canal of a tip of an average human is only about 30 feet. So somehow they wind themselves all up inside of you, um, to the point where they can cause blockages and all kinds of terrible things. And these cysts can build up to where they cause organ failure. Um, I mean, a 30 anyway. year old, 80 foot tapeworm, like that's part of the family, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's like, uh, that it should be named at that point, right? That's not a, Gee. that's, that's just called a kid. <laughs> so, um, to go back to the healthcare part of it and maybe a little bit less joking around, um, this, I, I watched this talk by this, uh, economist from Scripps, who's a professor, uh, his name's Sean Flynn and a friend of the show, Dan Sheehan sent me this video because him and I have talked about this topic a lot. Um, he's passionate about it and it, it's, it's about actually how Singapore delivers the same quality of care as the U S but at 80% of the cost. Uh, so, or sorry, well, eight, spending 80% less than the U.S., so it's 20% of the cost. Um, to give a little bit of some background on some numbers, like if you just think about a baseline of sort of human health and like if you have no intervention, Haiti, which spends $15 per year per person, uh, that the life expectancy there is 16, 62 years. So this is basically like, you know, if you have no help at all, you might get to 62. Um, the, and then obviously, as you get more healthcare services, you know, the U.S. is up to 78. Singapore is at 83. Now, you know, the, the U.S. healthcare system is actually, it's highly effective. And, it, and if you're going to be in an acute accident, it's where you want to have it happen, right? Like our ability to intervene in trauma situations is really unparalleled. Uh, however, we're just spending so much goddamn money to, to make that happen. Um, just unconscionable amounts of money. So as a percentage of GDP, France, Sweden, they're around like nine to 10%. Uh, that's a little bit more of a normal, uh, like global average. The US at 18%, right? Which is almost 2X. And that's, that's our GDP is obviously much bigger than theirs as well. Um, but Singapore is in at 3.9%. Now, that equates to then like, it's about $8,000 per person in the US that's spent, whereas in Singapore, it's $1,300. And just to give a little bit of reference on some numbers of that 18% of GDP, like how big that is, what do you think that we spend in total for the US GDP on defense, right? Like all these wars that we've been waging, missiles we launch at, all kinds of shit. Like what, what do you think that we spend? I, I don't know, like a trillion? Well, percent of GDP. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I, th I thought it was like 20. I thought it was, but I could be, I'm thinking I'm wrong based on the way this questioning is going. I thought that the, I thought GDP was about, I thought it was 17. So I guess it's like 6%. 3.4%. Wow. Social security. How much do you think we spend on that? Like everyone bitches about it. Like this is unsustainable. We spend too much money. How much do you think we spend on that? Well, it's got to be the same or slightly less. So I'll go 3%. Yeah, mid singles. Yeah. 4.8. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Now just for another fun point of fact, uh, 2020 federal deficit, right? Like how much did we spend versus bring in, uh, 15% ouch. Ooh. 
2021's deficit, uh, looking like it might come in in about the 10% range. So we got that credit card out right now. But uh, so in the last 40 years, there's been this phenomena where the the middle income kind of person, like the middle class, their, their real adjusted wages have gone nowhere in 40 years, right? And that's probably a source of a lot of the the social unrest that we see. Like people just feel like, shit, everyone's made all this money, but I'm left behind. Well, what's been happening? Well, the total comp actually has been rising at the same rate that it was before, before that sort of like 1980 when it ticked over. Um, and what's happening there is that the ins- it's been going to insurance premiums. They've gone up at a 10% CAGR over that mm-hmm. whole time. So your total comp has actually gone up, but your take-home pay has not. It's just been going to the going to the medical insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So healthcare really is, has been this vampire in this, this tapeworm on really not just like corporations, but on the average person and what they're taking home. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's a little, a little disheartening in that this video that I got uh, a lot of these, these facts from is from 2012. Oh. And so like we've made no progress in yeah, the last decade. I'm on sure this. it's, Sure, it's quite a bit worse today than it was in 2012. To be honest with you, I'm pretty sure that's Probably true. Probably worse. So here's uh, here's what's really going on and why our system is broken. And it really it comes down to like economics 101. At the margin, the decision, the point of sale, where we decide what to consume as as a a person in a healthcare setup that we have, we are so like the prices are set so artificially low to us with this copay system. Right. Uh, insurance policies are become this basically sort of all you can eat thing where you end up with basic tragedy of the commons. Like this is econ 101. Um, and so a perfect example of that is the spending when from 64 year old versus a 65 year old. And you know what happens at that age, right? Like you kick over onto Medicare, right? All of a sudden you're on the, you're on the all you can eat buffet. Like how much does spending go up from a 64 year old to a 65 year old? It's 40% more, Oof. right? Oof. And it's not that, that people are just like, oh, I'm, I'm waiting until I'm 65 to get that life-saving surgery now, right? Like all of a sudden, <laughs> like health outcomes are no different between 64 and 65. It's just now that it's someone else is paying for it, we overconsume. Um, so what about these other places that are kind of heralded like Canada and the UK, uh, different systems? They don't use a pricing mechanism to solve this problem they use rationing instead. So you, you queue up, like you get in line and it's, you know, if you want a knee surgery, it's going to take four years from now. Um, not, I'm not sure that's much of a better system, but people seem to, to tout that these other systems is better than what we have. I'm not so sure about that, but, um, and there's also this kind of denial of care thing where they figure out like, Hey, if, uh, if it's going to cost $30,000 this year to, to save your life, well, that's kind of over what we have allocated for that budget. So sorry, that's, it's not, not, we're not going to be footing the bill for that. Um, now, how, what does Singapore do that's completely different? How did they solve this problem? Well, first of all, they, they force citizens to save one third of their income. And 6% goes into the, a healthcare savings account, which is, it's kind of like a health, um, like an HSA in the US. Um, 15% goes into retirement account. So they have basically like a forced IRA. And then 10% goes into a pot that can either be used for your education or a housing. Like, and like something like 80% of people own their own houses in Singapore. Um, 
So they basically, and then the, the government pays, I think like a 4% interest rate on the money that you put into here. And the thing is, with the, especially with the medical, because you start so early and you put money in there and it grows and you don't tend to need it when you're young and healthy, you get to the end of the line where most of the expenses are and you've actually like saved enough money to take care of it. So you don't end up with this, this free-for-all system where we have of the difference between the 64-year-old and the 65-year-old. Um, so now in this system, uh, they... Uh, Basically, like uh, the other thing, too, is that the government will they buy an insurance policy for you that's sort of like a super catastrophe healthcare wise. And do you know how much that ends up costing the the government to pay for this? So it's a two thousand dollar deductible. So they you have to pay for everything out of pocket out of your own HSA up to two thousand dollars. And then the rest is on the government. And so everything above that two thousand dollars, how much do you think that the, the average citizen pays for that? And knowing how much, I don't know if you guys know how much you pay for your healthcare premiums, but what would you guess per month? So they've, they've got a reinsurance, they've got like a catastrophe. So they're reinsured above $2,000. Is that, is that the idea? Right. Uh, but it's the government doing it. So it's not, it it's not actual reinsurance. So, and it's, and it's uncapped. Uncapped. I mean, it could be like, oh, uh, I, I hate to hesitate, hesitate. Hes hes Hazard a guess here, but I'd say, I don't know, let's say $2,000 a month. No. No, that, with that deductible, it's going to be low. I, I, would, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me it's $100 a month. I mean, that deductible is, is huge. What do you got, Jake? $14 a month. So, oh. <laughs> right. So, and what's happening here, why the US is broken is that because we have individual state commissioners who decide what gets included in plans or not. So you have lobbyists then that can say, hey, you need to make sure that chiropractic is included. You need to make sure that Viagra is included. You need Ray to make Benz. sure that. Hey, don't come after yeah. Viagra, Jake. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it really does become a political thing where like what gets included is really pushed by by lobbyists. And, you know, they want to have their thing included so that they can jack the price up. And, you know, when we think about like why is healthcare so expensive? It is not this, you know, catastrophe, you need a liver transplant type of thing. Those things are very rare. It's more just these like bullshit visits because your yeah, kid has a cold. Yeah. It's the everyday stuff that takes up all the doctor's time that, that actually most of the money's being wasted. So by with Singapore, by making you decide, well, do I want to spend my own money on this? And you decide like, eh, the kid, it'll probably go away. Like this cold's going to go away. We don't need to bring him in. I don't want to pay for that. All of a sudden, like the, the medical system is freed up to handle the real important things. And it costs just way, way less money. Um, now, the other thing they do that's interesting is that they allow you to shop around for the services, right? And, and that the, the doctors are actually required to post a menu of, for services. Uh, so you get to see what the price is when you go in like, oh. And then the other thing they, is they make the, the hospitals post for different surgeries, the complication rates, Right. So you can look and see like, oh, well, this one, uh, it's considerably cheaper, but they have a lot higher complication rate. Maybe that's not really the place that I want to go. Right now, the, now the marketplace is is discriminating against poor service uh, as opposed to, you know, the insurance company just kind of deciding like price and quality matter at that point. And it, yeah, that's a great saying that uh, like the Singapore government, they force you to save, but then they trust you to spend. Mm. And I was like, damn, we just need a lot more of that, I think, in the U.S. than what we have. Um, now, what's interesting is if you look at for counterexamples, 
you know, other places that are adjacent to medical, like LASIK, cosmetic surgery, even pet care, like all those things have seen dramatic decreases in price and improvement in quality over time, right? That's what technology does. It wants to give you more for less. Um, but we've been we've been thwarting that. Um, that's, the, that's the thing I'm always amazed by, like particularly in this joint, when you drive around, there's ads for, uh, you know, Botox shots. And Botox yeah. shots are just like, they're basically like, they're like 15 bucks a shot or something. I've got no idea how many you need, but you can probably tell that by looking at my head, but you, <laughs> for you, it's going to be a lot. <laughs> You're going to need 50. Oh, okay. It's expensive. So they've done a couple of tests here in the U S actually whole foods. Um, you know, John Mackey, who is one of the founders and, and CEO there was, uh, you know, he has this idea of conscious capitalism and he's, he's, he's a pretty big kind of free market guy, but he, they set up for all of their full-time employees. Um, they will put money, $1,850 into an HSA for them. And then there's, uh, they will buy an additional like high deductible plan up to 2,700. And then anything above that is covered by the plan. And they saw that their costs dropped 35% just putting this plan in. Just no other changes. Uh, they did another experiment in the state of Indiana government workers and found similar results. And no quality of care differences. People still went and got their mammograms. They got their testing. Like it, no quality of care changes at all. Um, and it's like little stuff like when given the option of people, 92% of people will pick the name brand drug when someone else is paying for it. But when it's right. their bill, when it's, they, they pick the generic, it, it drops to 13% then taking the name brand, right? All of a sudden you like, well, name brand's good. I don't need name brand if, uh, <laughs> right? So there's yeah. just a million ways that you can save money in this. It's, it's such an interesting topic that you bring up. I mean, there's so many things swimming in my, in my mind and you just cut me off. Cause like I told Toby a, a while ago, if you let me talk, I'll just keep going. But there's one, one thing that jumps in my mind as we start talking about deductibles, uh, Tyrone V Ross was on uh, Brewster's pod a while ago. And he said something that's just stuck with me. I think about it once a week. He said, it's very expensive to be poor. It was a concept I never really considered. And then you, you start talking about high deductible insurance. The truth is if, if you have a decent savings, you should have the highest deductible insurance. You really should only be insuring against disasters. I mean, you, you should cover the day-to-day -day stuff. If you go to disaster insurance on your car, your house, it's cheap. I mean, it costs you almost nothing. Nobody does it. But the reason it costs you nothing, to your point, is nobody sends in a bill. If you go in for a $1,000 procedure in a $2,500 deductible, you're not going to talk to the insurance company. And the vast majority of stuff is 100, 200, 1,000. So if you have the high deductible, it's just very cheap. So if you know, again, it's just, it, it's just remarkable to me when I hear something like that. I'm like, that's right. It's very, very expensive to be poor, which is maybe something the country should think about. But the next thought I had, this reminds me very much of cable companies. So the video bundle. Mm -hmm. So when you put the intermediary in there and they're dealing with the content and aggregation of everything, think aggregation of services from doctors to the customer, and you put in cable as an intermediary, in this case, the insurance companies, you know, it changes the dynamic of how people think about pricing and bundling and aggregation. And it, it, in, it, in this case, in the case of the cable companies, John Malone was vilified for this. And he's like, our prices are going up. He's like, you don't understand. I'm, I'm pricing at a third of the rate of my content cost. And by the way, I know you don't want ESPN, which he once called like the great tax on the American people. It's like, it's not <laughs> wrong. It's like the great tax on the American people is ESPN. I think it's like $8 a month or $10 a month. And only a third of, of watchers actually wanted it, but everybody had to have had it to because of the- it, yeah had to. And that's very similar to uh, how insurance companies operate, to your point about how they intertwine with regulators and certain people want different services. And so they bundle it together and then they have this opaque pricing mechanism. And as a consumer, you don't care because it's employer sponsored, which is 
also I would, the point you're making, I think part of the problem. And the one last point I have on this. So my wife's a doctor. We're going to open a practice for her in Fort Collins, Colorado. And so I've done this very deep dive over a couple of years on pediatric ophthalmology and starting a, a, a practice of pediatric ophthalmology. And of course, the, the biggest issue is payers. So relationships with payers is the biggest issue. Commercial payers is the biggest for pediatrics. They have no relationship with Medicare. There's some Medicaid, but it's mostly uh, commercial payers. And so I was in um, their APOS, which is their um, uh, industry group. I was in a panel with, you know, as people, here's how you start a practice. And so we put up slides, fascinating to me. So everybody thinks you know, doctors make all this money. They do fine. They cover their cost of capital for sure. And the cost of capital is very high, but they cover it. Uh, there was this slide somebody put up says like, here's how much money on average, all of our APOS members, pr private practices have made over 10 years. And the, the uh, profit per visit. So think profit per patient was unchanged in 10 years, unchanged. If you wanted to make more money as a doctor for the last 10 years, you had to work harder. That was really the only way for you to make an additional dollars. You had to see more patients. You had to, there's yeah, only so many volume. hours in a day. It's all volume, right? And so I, I was like, that's, I would have guessed that it would be up at least with inflation. I mean, but on an absolute dollar basis, it was flat for 10 years. It's like, you know, it'd be a fun exercise. What if I went into United Health Financials over that exact same time period and looked at profit per insured? Guess what was not flat over the last 10 years? It tripled. <laughs> Think about that. It tripled profit per insured. This is operating profit. So I'm not looking at balance sheet, just operating profit per insured and the retail lines tripled over 10 years. It blew me away. It was like, how the fuck is this even possible? So like, and I guess for that, from there, it, they don't care because it's the employer who picks the plan. And so they only have to deal with the employers and it's the doctors who get the gruff for like, well, you know, I'm paying more on in insurance and they get, so they, they, the insurance companies have found this like sweet little spot where nobody's paying attention. Nobody cares. I should have just bought the insurance companies when I did that. It's like, this is like, what a great yeah. business. I can just don't let your wife practice. Just, just insurance companies. <laughs> well, you see it and it's a real tragedy in New York. Um, a lot of uh, the best doctors, they don't take insurance and I get it. Like at, at now having gone through this process of setting up relationships with the commercial insurers, seeing how they respond to doctors. I mean, it's really it, it, it's honestly, it's like just this, the strangest, most bizarre relationship with doctors and payers. And they like, they won't take your call. They'll never tell you who they are. So you can never get the same person twice. They often don't pay just to not pay just to see if you're checking that they didn't pay. It's like this whole bizarre. Anyway, I could go on, but it, uh, the yeah, system's messed up. Dick. I agree with you. Yeah. I'm, I'm with up. you. It's, it's odd coming from outside into this system and then seeing that, you know, when you, when you go to see the doctor or whoever you see, you don't, you don't ever see a price that just comes out yeah. later. And then the insurance company says, this is what they tried to charge us. And this is what we actually ended up like. We negotiated some money down. I'm like, did you? Like, how would I know that? Yeah. And then it's the employer who pays for the insurance costs. So nobody at any stage who is consuming the service pays for the service. So it's just everything's going to run we, away. We do though. We all pay for it in the form of higher prices for everything, right? And, and misallocation of resources where if, take 8% of GDP, which would put us back at, you know, Sweden or France or whatever, like back down to 10, what else could we do in the world? And to make you happy with that other extra 8% of GDP, rather than go to this bullshit system. That's defense and, uh, and, uh, defense uh, and social security, and social security would security, be covered you. if we just even cleaned up this like horribly incentivized system. Like it, the incentives are just all wrong. 
that deficit, get that deficit whittled down. I, I think you're right. We're, they're paying, we're all, well, I, I don't work, but people who do work are paying for it. And, and, and real productive yeah. citizens are yeah, actual <laughs> people who have actual jobs to do actual things that help the world. Thank you to you people. I appreciate what you're doing. But, but uh, his, but they, his, my, sorry, sorry. I'm going to cut you off. No, Keep going. Good. I was just going to say they are paying for it in stagnant wages. I mean, that's, that's essentially, I think we just figured out all of the sources of inequality and social unrest are due to uh, the commercial payers. So I'm glad we highlighted this, Jake. Thank you very much. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing that concerns me. We've got like, You've come up with the, the, the way we're going to pitch to the VCs, Mike. We're going to say we're unbundling healthcare. So immediately they're all just going to get their checkbooks out. And then right. the problem that we're going to have is that we're going to turn around and say, well, uh, Buffett, Gates, and who, who, who else is the third person in that group? Diamond. Yeah, Jamie, Jamie Diamond. Diamond have had a go at this thing. And those guys know how to run business. And they've said, remind, no, this who, is too hard. Can you remind me who those guys are? <laughs> kidding. You know, you, you know what you need. It, well, if you were gonna, if it was gonna work in the way that it worked with Netflix or in the way it worked with um, Apple, when they when they broke, when they w- essentially went around the labels, uh, when you were Apple on the music side, and when you're video, it, it, I mean, it's not the same business, but the way it, the, it's direct to consumer, right? You, you it's got to be direct to consumer. So we have the consumers, and then we have the providers. It's the people in the middle that are the problem. So if you were if you were going to come up with a real solution, this is like what do I know? You know, I'm I'm a guy with you know physician's wife who's who's done work on one specific part of this. But in my mind, if you were going to do it, you do it. And I think Kaiser's uh, Permanente is something similar to this, where it's just we just hand, it's all direct. So you you pick, you pay. The cost is very transparent. Actually, a lot of um, I don't know in New York if they do it so much, but like in Colorado where we're moving. Uh, a lot of physicians have pricing sheets. So they, and, and it's actually, the, the formula is very simple on what they charge for. Everything that a, a physician does has a code associated with it. And most codes, commercial codes all differ, but they're all based similarly around Medicare codes. So if you really want to know what stuff costs, you just you can go to Medicare, they publish sheets um, in every state. And then the vast majority of these pricing sheets will be a multiple of, of Medicare. So like one and a half times Medicare is like pretty, but that to your point, that's not what the insureds pay. The insureds have their, the commercial payers have their own relationship with each one of the uh, physicians and then, you know, or physician groups, and then they pay whatever negotiated rate that, that they've uh, sort of settled on. So it's, it's a weird system, man. You'd have to cut out all of the middlemen. And by the way, I'm not even sure you could do that because you're, now you're going to consumers and saying, you know, you didn't pay for this before. At least you didn't think you were paying for it. Now you have to pay for it, but we're going to make it cheaper overall and tell your employer you don't want him to cover your insurance. But then our employer is going to give their people, you know, their employees a raise because they're not on the insurance plan. The reality is the employee is already paying for the insurance for at least themselves and possibly for other people. Well, you're at least problem. getting, you're at least getting, uh, you know, over time that would correct itself, right? The, the, pr- salaries would start going up to to correct for that even if it's not in any given instance it might not but on aggregate over time it sure it would just start growing again i mean that's what you'd think you'd think that eventually the labor market would not allow profits to that the 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 bottom line to the equity owners in the business would not expand just because you know money wasn't flowing expenses weren't flowing out to the you know commercial payers essentially and and worker productivity wouldn't be skimmed off by the by the insurance medical insurance companies basically Mm -hmm. Because that's really the dynamic that's happened. Yeah, no, totally. Well, it, I think we've solved the problem. Someone, uh, someone shoot a memo to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do that. Hold please. on, I just take a few notes here, and I'll just I'll shoot it <laughs> off. Shoot it off to Warren and see if he can put me in charge. Your your other point was one hundred percent right. If if Warren, um, Jeffrey, and Jamie can't can't figure this out, I I'm not sure the problem is solvable. I mean, I, that that's the yeah, biggest. Yeah, that's scary. Me. I don't know though. I'm, did, not, sure I'm not sure they thought big enough. 
Like they're, you know, I mean, they've, they've been in the system maybe a little too much. You have to get out of the matrix to really like, you know, bring down the robots. Can I write my phone, my phone number up and just hold it here. And so Warren can call me if he wants to think bigger. Text me, text me. He's listening. Hit me up on my DMS and Twitter, Warren. I'm around. I've got some thoughts. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm sorry to derail this and make it go in a, uh, in a, in a, uh, less exciting way but I, I need to talk about value a little bit so uh so first day of the month which means we've got a month of a month of performance what's been happening um so value ha had this great run from september and it ran really hard i think i think value sort of still working based on what what happened in may but it looks to me like the two the two factors that have really broken down in may were the size factor little companies got really beaten up through May and uh, quality too, which is sort of a, a balance sheet and a, an ability to throw off free cash flows has been weak since, uh, since about May last year. And so my, my theory is that um, a lot of this is sort of reopening trade type stuff that the value, value when it started running, it caught all of these, um, you know, that's, it's, the cruise lines and it's the airlines, all that stuff, which is asset intensive, but uh, you know hasn't been operating at anywhere near full capacity. So that that all that stuff fell into the value bucket, which has had a great sort of uh, nine months or so now, three quarters of pretty good of pretty good running, three and a half quarters of pretty good running. Size is the really odd one. Size seemed to me to take off with value last year, and it had this really precipitous kind of drop over the last uh, like just call it three weeks seems to have bottomed out and quality is the, is the funny one. So quality, which has struggled over the last 12 months, presumably because there's been, there's been so much money, a wash out there. It means things that are marginal get a really good run and quality, which are companies that tend to be self-financed. They just don't, um, they're not as big a beneficiary. So they, they sort of, they underperform a little bit. There's when but there's less existential risk than quality, you know, is not going to be, it never was in jeopardy of going bankrupt. So when it, that comes off the table, there's less juice there for. And quality has been, it's real, you know, it's, it's not, when you look at the, how deep the drawdowns in a factor basis, when you look at the, the depth of the drawdown in value, like that's quite kind of stunning. It's something I've been talking about on the show for, for years now, but you know, that, that's uh, what well, it certainly feels that way, but that, you know, Mikhail Samanov, who I always refer to, who's done that too, he's got the, the 200 years of data, and this is like the worst drawdown in 200 years of data, which is something like clearly that the, the older data is not as uh, not as granular as the current data, but it's still it's still kind of an interesting it's an interesting thing. And size similarly, size is so beaten up that uh, as a factor, it's like no longer got any uh, alpha in it. So like they just disregard size as a factor, which you know I can see some argument for that. I, it doesn't necessarily appeal to me intuitively as a factor, but it has been regarded as one for a really long period of time. And then quality too, like the quality. Uh, I don't know. I don't know kind of where we are in this cycle, but it's not unusual for value to sort of explode out of the bottom and then quality to start looking a little bit better from the early to the mid cycle through to the end. But I, I realize that you guys aren't you guys aren't factor investors. I'm just. I'm just curious, and I know Mike, you're very, very concentrated. So you, you, you might be so idiosyncratic, you don't really even consider it at all. But to, do, do you, do you notice the impact on the portfolio? Like, do you notice the impact on your positions, or are they so tied to the? 
I, I think so for just for me, I mean, I, I own two stocks today, really. I mean, I, I honestly, I really only own one, but you know, I also have some, some QVC and I, I, if I, if I, if we went back and, and, and looked at the factors and I would think that probably a, a, a good chunk of the beta in, in the move, especially in curate, but then also, you know, as the, the lumber mill investment uh, was driven by a rotation into value. I mean, it, value caught a bid right around the time I did that, which is, you know, obviously that was the bet I was making was that value was going to catch a bid. And that, you know, I was, I'm kidding. No, it's not that I had no idea, but that I, I do think that that had a lot to do with it is that all of a sudden people were buying like, you know, cheap stocks, decent businesses, nobody's going to go out of business and, you know, Momo beta kind of stuff. And I think that helped. And now it, because one of my positions has become so big, it just, it's what my daily performance, I mean, it can move. It's, it's kind of unbelievable what my overall portfolio can do on a day-to-day basis, uh, just based on the move in one stock, which is in a liquid, highly volatile stock. I mean, I can, I can, my portfolio can be up 25% a day, can be down 10% a day. Like it just, it's almost not even worth paying attention to because it doesn't really mean anything. Like there's just, you know, the, the, the mark, I, I pay attention to the market because I like it, but it doesn't really, um, you know, the market being up or down, even the peers, like my lumber peers, they, you know, they'll be up a percent and I'll be up 20. They'll be down a percent and I'll be down 15, you know, and so it doesn't doesn't really move the needle for me. I'd say my observation is that you know there's just not. If if I were going to guess on what the next opportunity would be, I would say that the, the opportunity is likely to be some of the really big stuff that people kind of passed on when it was super growthy, and it's coming to the point where you actually might be able to to put that into a bucket that can make sense from a guy who really cares about what they pay. Yeah. So um, that yeah. that sort it's of like a wrote, 2014 kind of rerun, like you know, Amazon quickly is becoming a stock that you can actually like kind of start to really underwrite. You know, for if, if you're very sensitive to valuation and you're not just looking at the business, you can start to underwrite it. And probably the same with Facebook. I think Microsoft. Gave, these are stocks that a lot of people passed on, myself included, because I didn't really understand you know the dynamics of Azure and growth and you know. But now it's that. When those stocks stay flat and earnings do this long enough, like pretty soon they start to look kind of interesting. And so my guess is that that's probably where the next uh, opportunity is going to be. And um, there's also some interesting stuff in special sits land. I mean, this doesn't speak to factors, but I, I just scratching my brain all last week thinking if there's a way to make money off this uh, T disco deal, um, smarter people than me have probably already figured it out, but I'm, I'm just, um, there just seems like there's gotta be a way to make money on that. And I, I don't know what the play is yet. I, one of these days when I stop playing golf and going in and having drinks and stuff, I'll sit, put a pencil paper and figure out if, if what that opportunity is. I'll come back on value after hours and talk about it, but there's a lot of stuff going on, but it, it's it, nothing that strikes me as crazy attractive. It's just, you know, I'm just kind of waiting. So. I don't know, Toby, do you feel like, um, <clears throat> with the, sort of recent run that, you know, maybe the stuff that you would have had is not quite as attractive on a price to value relationship as it was. And therefore it's just a little bit harder to hold your nose and just hang in there. That's absolutely true. The only thing that I would say is that, that the, you know, I started late last year, I was saying that I thought that the, the spreads were very, very wide. But in addition to that, particularly in small and micro land, the yields were so huge across the portfolio. I think the yield got to 6%. And then, you know, there's still, their payout ratios are still like a third. There's still two thirds like being reinvested in those businesses. And I thought like that aggregate pushing close to 20% likely kind of performance out of these things at some point, it don't, you don't really care matter. what the, the multiple, like the, you don't need any multiple 
uh, re-rating to get really good performance out of these things. And so I, I said that a little bit, and then it, and then it all took off. And so that the um, the portfolio now, I think that the yield on the portfolio on the small and micro stuff is like four percent, which I still think is really really fat. But you can, you know, commence the the, return, the forward returns go from like being closer to twenty to being closer to twelve or something like that. So it's it, it's I still think that's quite a high return historically. That's quite a high return embedded in there. It's still higher than average, but it's it's certainly come back. That's higher than a like a I don't, I don't know forty year data set average. I think it's about nine across the forty year data set, even mm. with the most recent kind of lower run. than I would have guessed for for small and micro. Yeah, it might be just that starting point. I have to I have to think a little bit more about the starting point, but over that full period, like I, I don't think you get the total return much more than nine percent, like total return much more than nine, and that includes um, you know dividends in the order of like two percent plus. So the the real the the nominal return in the market has been like high six, I think something like that, which is a lot lower than people would think if they've yeah. just started over the last few I years. Think there's some people that yeah, don't have that penciled into their long term. Well, if well, you're looking at cheap. from where we are. That's a, that's a totally different story. Like if you look at the the multiple being where it is, and you assume some sort of mean reversion over the next decade, which maybe that may not be an appropriate assumption. I'm just saying that I do include that assumption in there. But you get to um, you get negative total returns to the tune of about 0.8 percent, and that includes a dividend yield of like one point could be one point one point one percent. So you can you can. Uh, there's there's quite a substantial negative return on the index over the How next about decade. Profit margins come in at all from like absolute historical anomaly oh. levels. It gets gnarly, <laughs> but like like Mike, I've been kind of caught, I've been saying this is all nuts for yeah. like a really We've extended been period of time. On that for forever. Two things. First of all, you guys should be denominating these numbers in Bitcoin. That's that's your first problem. That's, <laughs> that's problem, problem number one. Uh, and, and problem number two is ba- based on the returns of the market in the last three years, I've, I've actually increased my return expectation. It was 10. <laughs> it was sensible. Now my, now my now pension return expectation is 50. That's exactly right. It's, it's, I've quadrupled it. That's or quadrupled it. That's, that's, that's the answer. You guys are going, you're going about fair. this the wrong way. <laughs> but, but then I, I'm not, you know, that that's, that's, I don't think that's necessarily an unfair assumption either. Cause I, there's, you know, there's, you can approach it looking at the valuation. You can pr- approach it looking at long-run returns, or maybe there's a there's this sort of momentum element in the market too, where if you have a few good years, maybe you do continue to have good years. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so Druck actually, uh, Druck and Miller did a, a written interview that I read over the weekend. I just should have retweeted. It was really good, and the guy's got some interesting. I mean, he's he's seen a lot, right? And so the last like big big boom in the '90s. I mean, he was one of the kind of key players in that and, and has some interesting war stories. And his take is interesting. He says, look, you know, the last time that this happened was this big, big boom. Um, a lot of these companies that people were sort of underwriting this growth to infinity when in fact they were infrastructure companies that were building on an infrastructure one time versus today, the companies are working like they actually are service models. And the idea would be that the infrastructure is already built. So now we're just building out services on top of the infrastructure. So it's like they could actually last are they cheap? Like uh, they, they, that's a whole nother question of whether they're cheap, but they're not, you know, the night, the idea of like a 90 plus percent drawdown is for some of these companies kind of off the table. And that, that struck me as insightful. It's not something that I had seen discussed before. It's, it's not a space, frankly, that I really play in. And when I factor in my future returns, I look at like, you have a, I, I'm too busy thinking about what has happened. And, and, and that colors me. It's a bias that I have where I say, well, 
last year, what was the market of 20%, you know, in a global pandemic. And then, you know, the year before that it was 30 and the, you know, the year 2018, we had a correction. It was down a whopping four and 27. You know, so I go back for the last 10 years. I'm like, my God, like this is just nuts. And reality is like, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's a lot, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a huge no. correction coming. And, yeah. and it really is like the, the facts are just, you know, every, every situation, the facts are just different. And, so I, I try not to be too biased by that, but I'd say, you know, some of the stuff still makes me pretty queasy. Like I'm not rushing out to put a lot of money to work today. Um, is it just some of the stuff just seems hard to me, but. Well, I was going to say in relation to the special situations comment that you made before that I think that special situations, like if you read some of those classics on special situations, not that, not that you necessarily, I'm not saying, you know, not that you necessarily have to do this. You clearly, if you're over the detail of the special situation, mm-hmm. this sort of broader approach isn't helpful but there's still this idea in many special situations that you're still looking for something that is over, undervalued yeah. so you can do a special situation in something that's overvalued but you've got less um certainty about the the remainder that you get after the event if they're undervalued at least you can find there's going to be some part of it that's going to have the, the there's a the, lot you know, more meat on the bone of the special yeah. situation when yeah. when things are cheap because curate yeah. And discovery and all of those, those have all been floating around as like they're cheap on a on a on a ratio basis. I'm not necessarily saying they were they were cheap otherwise, but curate had been a little bit disappointing for a while. And curate's one that's been in my screens for a few years a before yeah. before the event. Yeah. You know, those events are funny. I mean, you know, they they can really I think you said it best. You know, you when you find an event and you find a security you, you're you're certain is undervalued, it's it's just like it's like the best feel for me. It's the best feeling in the world. So I'm like, my God, like there's here's something that could actually change the way that people perceive the business, and it, and it usually is, you know, one single moment in time where you're just sort of like boom, and then every and now the world is different, you know, and and uh, sometimes it's you know bogus, but sometimes the case of of curate, I actually thought what they did was was smart. I, I thought they actually structurally were changing the cost of capital, and so there's other things like. Disco, where the disco looks very cheap, and the, the problem that I have with disco, like with Curate, I'm, I'm, I actually believe in, the, I understand and believe the business is stable. I could be wrong about that, but I think for discos, man, I don't, I have no idea what that business is going to earn. Zero, like I, five years uh, from now, it? zero. Yeah. And it, by the way, that that doesn't mean it's going to be bad. It could be beautiful. I mean, it, it could be a, a hundred bagger, but they're changing their business model, or at least in part, their business model is being changed for them. So you're losing this really lucrative linear business and you're picking up this uh, direct to consumer business. And there are companies who've done a phenomenal job at that. I think Disney's the new poster child for doing a really good job. And, but, but again, it's like you inject a tremendous amount of uncertainty, which makes it a lot harder to, to underwrite. And we get back to that thing you and I talked about Toby months ago, this idea of getting all your capital back. Well, if I'm getting all my yeah. capital back, then I don't really care. You know, I was like, okay, if it's great, it's great. If it's terrible, then, then that's fine. I didn't lose anything. But a lot of these, it's still you're still not at those type of prices. You're still making a bet that whatever on the other side is going to be better. And uh, yeah. it's, gosh, you have it's to be hard. right about something. You have to be right. You have to be right. It's not so cheap. You have to be right. It's hard with Discovery, isn't it? Like Disney's sort of almost a special. Like you've got the if you've got kids, you, you're kind of obliged to to get them Disney. Whereas Discovery and those sort of channels, they're great if you've got you're already paying for the subscription and you need something on in the background, but are you actively going out and hunting for that subscription? I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, your your do you, your kids don't demand that you watch Deadliest Catch. That's not something that they. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what they want to watch before they that's, go to bed. That's for the grandparents. <laughs> Save some stuff for the grandparents. <laughs> uh, that's funny. 
There'll be something to do. I don't know when, but there'll be something not with that or with something else. You know, there's always something, you know, I, that's if I've learned anything over 15 years of doing this, there's all something always pops up and you're sort of just better off when you don't have a lot of conviction in something. You're better off just waiting. Something will plan. There's a wise man who likes to say that too. It, it's uh, I think that was Henry Singleton caught a lot of shit for that. You know, he used to say like, you know, how do you manage a business? He's like, I just kind of come in and take it day to day. You know, it's like, well, that's, it's kind of my style too. It's like something will show up and give us something to do. And if, if you don't feel it in your gut, then you know, move on. If it doesn't watch this drive. <laughs> I've got the, uh... <laughs> there you go. Never Beautiful. far, never far. Well, we, folks, get a, we have to get to get a couple questions in now since we have Mike well, don't, on, don't we? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, put your, like put a, your questions a, in, folks. A special uh, situation. Mike is going to be Mike is going to be back, so he, he, you can... Uh, how, how, how often am I doing this, Toby? Am I, am I doing it also next week, or is that was that a bogus invite? That it was you're, you're, you're booked in for, for the month of, of June. Every, tu- every Tuesday. That's, that's not a joke. It's, that's, Sorry, folks. <laughs> look, look at his face. He was like, oh. Sorry, folks. <laughs> but uh, we, it, it may be a foursome. And, and, uh, no, I'm can... good. I'm good. I have nothing going on. I have, every Tuesday is free. I, I remember telling you every Tuesday is free. I didn't realize that meant every Tuesday was going to be. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to actually call me on that. <laughs> but yeah, the only, the only question I've got for you, Mike, is what has this got to do with the lumber market? <laughs> Did somebody actually ask that or is that my question? No, that's too? a question. That's a question. I don't know. Nothing. Nothing. I, let's talk more about lumber. Let, that's all next week. All S- next week. I'll go into share my model. Go into lumber. Specific question on NASPA's process. Uh, I don't know. I don't know it well enough, but I do have a recording with, uh, with Adrian Saville, who's a South African uh, investor who, who does discuss that. Uh, that's a few weeks back. What do you do with your capital while you're waiting, Mike? Mm, good question. Right now it's being dumped into a house in Fort Collins, Colorado. So hopefully that'll end up being a good investment. I, I have um, my, my portfolio is just, it's bizarre now because I have this massive uh, rights offering. Um, the rights on, on the largest position I own are worth more than the security itself. So, and that those rights expire worthless if I don't exercise them or sell them. So uh, I've, I've raised a lot of cash in anticipation of exercising. And then I've, of course I've gotten personal backstops from people so I can exercise if I need to right now, that's where all the money is. Um, once that's resolved. So once that um, transaction closes, the rights are either exercised or sold then I'm just going to reassess. And uh, I, this, the position now is like, if you include the cash and the rights offering, it's like 95% of my you know net worth. It will not be that at the end of the year. It, it just, it can't, I'm going to have to sell something to pay for house and move and everything. And then over time, I would expect that that will get whittled down. And there's an uplist coming in that, which I, I just, my history tells me never to sell into an uplist. You always wait until the uplist comes. And then when it lists on the NYSE, uh, within six months, it's likely to be. If you look at the peers, they're trading much better than than ICL, so it gives me a lot of comfort that uh, that that'll be good. And then I, my guess is that when there's some liquidity that shows up on the other side of that, and the deal's closed, I'll raise some cash, and then uh, and then I, I just wait. I, I would have put it in those uh, QVC preferreds. Uh, that was like my best idea for a cash alternative. Those were trading at par just a couple of like a month and a half ago. They're now with the distribution. They're now 109. Um, so they've they've had it for preferred up nine percent. It's like nothing yield. Are yeah. I mean, they're, you know, they're they're still. It's not crazy. They're still seven, but 
it's like um, buying them at par. It just, there's something mentally for me. I was like, well, I'll get eight and it's fine. If, it, if it's a little bit volatile, a little squishy. Now it's like, oh my God, like I kind of thought it could go to 110 and it's basically there. It just shows you there's not a lot going on in the world right now. There's just not a lot of really exciting stuff. So I'll just sit in cash and wait. Yeah, we're kind of in no man's land a little bit, aren't we? We need to see something happen one way or the other. Something will happen, Some, for sure. Something will blow out. You need the next card sure. out of the deck to see yeah. what. <laughs> it's coming. I just don't know when, but it's coming. All right, folks, this is fun. Uh, we'll be we'll be back next week. It might be a full foursome for for this. Uh, not sure, but we'll we'll see. Thanks, uh, thanks for filling in, Mike. Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13. Sing one, two.